The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. Today, Griffin Barber sits down with Paula Goodlett and Gorg Huff to discuss their latest novel, An Angel Called Peterbilt. This was one of the final books that Eric Flint worked on before his passing this past year, and we're excited to bring it to readers. Let's take a listen to the interview. Hello and welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. I'm excited today to interview two of my favorite 1632 authors, Paula Goodlett and Gorg Huff. Paula has been part of the 1632 universe from almost the beginning. Enjoying her retirement from the United States Air Force, where she was a long-service NCO, Paula was one of those on the ground floor when Eric Flint opened up the Ring of Fire series. Writing her own stories in the universe, she first helped Eric keeping track of canon and later became the first editor of the Grantville Gazette. She and Gorg have collaborated with Eric on several novels that comprise the What's Going Down in Russia arc, as well as novels in the wider Time Spike universe, also of Eric's creation. Created as an offshoot of the events of the Ring of Fire and available from Bain Books as well. Gorg Huff has, among other things, been a paratrooper, an office worker, and uh, a few other things before teaming up with Paula to become one half of the one of the most prolific writing teams in the 1632 universe. Penning many short stories, novellas, and novels, this team has included uh, work in the Time Spike novels uh, and a number of other works unrelated to 1632. A particular note is Gorgon Paula's War Spell series, which is now comprises several volumes. Hello and welcome back, Gorgon Paula. Hello. So first question, I think you might recall from a previous interviews, what is the coolest thing about sovereign states for each of you? Well, it's the airplane. I love doing the airplanes and the fact that the airplane takes down a dirigible. I really liked that part. Paratroopers. But yeah, paratroopers. I love the paratroopers. Cool. And that I do have to correct something though, Griffin. I, I was not actually the first editor. Uh when when Eric started, a lady named Cheryl Detweiler was his assistant editor. Okay, but she had a stroke and a heart attack at the same time. And Eric was looking for somebody who could fill in for her. And that was me. Cool. Uh, but I don't like to let Cheryl be forgotten. Absolutely. She was there in the beginning. I I did not come in until uh, Grantville Gazette number three. All right. Well, Just good. wanted to let you know that. Well, definitely, absolutely, uh, and our watchers appreciate that, as, as, especially given what uh, you know, having had Eric pass as well to remember the fact that you know he did create this universe as much as we all uh, helped out building it out uh, he was the instigator so i'm sure he appreciates that as well i'm sure he would so uh, this book starts with a bang uh, as a retired first responder i often have a hard time with fiction that covers the kind of event that happens no spoilers <laughs> but i found that sovereign states explores it exceptionally well uh, what kind of research or experience did the two of you have going into the writing of these scenes? Absolutely none. <laughs> uh, um, there, there's a logic to it. There is a logic to the situation that um, you can't, that if you're going to pay attention, if you're paying attention to what you're doing, if you're paying attention to writing, you, you're going to realize that uh, Heinlein, as Heinlein said in the title of one of his stories, blow-ups happen. Right. Accidents, industrial problems, people make mistakes, things blow up, things happen, they go wrong, and people panic, people make bad decisions, sometimes they make good decisions in an emergency. 
and it's it's your circumstances and the character of the people that determines that sort of thing. Very cool. So the uh, the events of Sovereign State cover has a plane crash as well. Uh, have either, either of you ever been in a plane crash? Uh, no, a plane I, crash. I've flown. I, no. No. <laughs> I was just open because, you know, it seems... Actually, so... he was a paratrooper, so he jumped out of perfectly good air aircraft yeah. Me? no <laughs> uh so i i asked because again it was a uh the it never threw me out of the story your your handling of that uh that crash and the the instigating events and then the investigation of it afterwards uh well, there so are actually a couple of crashes the the first one is uh yeah that that that's yeah the first one and then the investigation the second one was different. It was a weather-related incident. And uh, I don't think they found the bodies for some time. So in with regard to that, who, which of you takes the lead on, on writing that kind of sequence or uh, that kind of action-y thing? Or the... Always Gord. Okay. I mean, I've often said that Gorg is the plotter, and I am the speller. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Gorg comes up with these things that that I have never experienced. I did, you know, I'm I'm female and I'm seventy, and they would not have allowed me to jump out of an airplane in the, the army. Hold it, hold it. Or the air. There were there were riggers. There were riggers that uh, and a rigger. The thing about a rigger is a rigger is the person who rigs the parachute. Right. Right. And there were female riggers, but one of the but a rigger will all is always a paratrooper, and a rigger always jumps with one of the parachutes chosen at random that they have rigged. Right. Uh, yes. Well, when I joined the Air Force, <laughs> I uh, came in high on the administrative level. Yeah. So I got stuck in office. Yeah. So I never jumped out of an airplane, and quite frankly, I don't want to. Did you ever have Fun. to part an investigation of a, of a crash or anything like that? No. No, no, I did. They uh, first stuck me in personnel and then they stuck me into finance. And, you know, I paid people. And that was about it. Oh, okay. So uh, in the original timeline, much of Eastern Europe and Western Asia were slow to industrialize. But then they kind of took off like a shot during the uh, World War II and uh, subsequent uh, years. Yeah. The sovereign um, state seems to have adapted or adopted uptime technological innovation far more than just about any other downtime political unit outside of the USE with steam okay. machines, generators, aqualators, planes, dirigibles, and firearms. Uh, they they cut the, the thing about it is they didn't, right? They had an agent in Grantville, they had actually several agents in Grantville, and I actually, and they copied the, it's actually in Kremlin games, how they did it. Right. It's mentioned it way back in Kremlin games uh, that what was going on is they had somebody in Grantville who was paying people not to translate the books in Russian, but to simply copy the books in the Grantville library, every book that they could get their hands on. And then they would ship those untranslated books back to the dacha in Russia. And then they had a whole staff who were translating the books and then going to this poor guy, Bernie Zeppi, who was not the, uh, he was not, he wasn't stupid, but he wasn't an intellectual giant. He was an ordinary guy, right? right? But basically he had, he was the only student in a university with 50 professors and a constant open book test that ran for four solid years, he got educated 
whether he wanted to or not. But in the process, he also provided a conduit or part of a conduit that moved the stuff that was being developed in Grantville to Russia almost as fast as it was developed. And that was basically just good spycraft on the part of Russia. And I'm honestly, I'm a little disappointed that more nations didn't do that. Uh, I would expect I would have expected the French to do that. I would have expected, well, not the Spanish, because we all know how the Spanish were reacting. But I would have, would have expected the the Mughals might have had a more difficult time simply because of the transit time, and they didn't have the Baltic Sea connection, which went through Sweden, Swedish territory, but it was still a pretty straight connection. For, for most of the, yeah, until um, Volga rules, until Volga rules and the revolution and all that. Um, so really though, pretty, what I was going yeah, go was was why? Because the, the Mughals, like you were talking about, in, in my estimation, had had a reason, however faulty, for kind of like, no, we don't need your stuff because we have people that we, we put out of work and that kind of thing. Um. All right, this is a little bit of it is the reality. Well, a little bit of it is the reality of the situation. And a lot of it is Russia has always thought of itself as part of Europe. And it has always been treated by Western Europe as the slow brother in the back room. Okay? Right. And generally with justification. Poland was sitting there right in the middle at that time and blocking a lot of advancement. But there were a number of people in Russia at that time. As a matter of fact, um, Tsar Mikhail's cousin was an absolute Western Europe-ophile. He loved it. Right. He loved everything Western European. He shaved it, the whole thing. And Peter the Great later tried to do it and tried to force it. But the other thing that we did is as soon as they got the, the history books, they knew that this was their one shot at catching up with Europe because everybody was behind Grantville. So I, uh, I, I made, there were a number of factors. Right. No, it sounds interesting. I, I, I appreciate that. About I have always felt about this is that Tsar Mikhail, okay, you have to remember that Tsar Mikhail became Tsar when he was like 16 years old. And he was made Tsar because nobody else wanted to do it because they figured they'd get killed. Okay. So Tsar Mikhail our Tsar Mikhail yeah. figured out that he didn't have to die and he hadn't he didn't have to be his father and he didn't have to be one of the really bad guys and he wanted our Mikhail wanted things to be better Right. And that's the way we wrote him. In a way, and even in real life, I mean, he was not as bad as the rest of the turkeys, you know. <laughs> in a way, he was Marcus Aurelius. Well, he wasn't. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, that that I'm going way back, farther and back in history. The uh, I think it was Marcus Aurelius. Uh, the philosopher emperor of Rome right after um, Augustus. Yeah. The one who wanted to return it to the Republic, but never managed it. Uh, Mikhail did not want to be king. This is documented Russian history. The And uh, whether it's legend or fact, the belief throughout history, and, and it's pretty much generally agreed on, 
is that the 16 year old kid when actually broke down in tears when they told him he had to be emperor, had to be czar of Russia. Because he was terrified. He was terrified that he couldn't do the job. He was terrified that they were going to kill him. He knew absolutely that they had chosen him because he would be weak. And so he was weak because that was the only way to stay alive. They killed his first wife. They almost killed his second wife. And that was his mother doing it. So this is, you know, I mean, talk, some people think their families are dysfunctional. <laughs> yeah. And, but Mikhail wants a way out and he wants a way out that will not bring back the time of troubles. That was the other thing he was terrified of. When I said he could, he was afraid he couldn't do the job. When Mikhail got the throne, they were coming out of the time of troubles. And this was like, the 30 years war, but Russia doing it to itself. Okay. It was just uh, violence and banditry and no law and every man's hand against every other. And that was what they were, that's, that's what they were trying to do. Meanwhile, an invasion from Poland and another one from Sweden, all at the same time. Um, it was not pleasant. Uh, so Mikhail was put in place to prevent that from happening again, but not but to because he wouldn't have any power right. and the Boyer Duma would run things. And that's what happened in our timeline. The Boyer Duma ran things, ran things for him and to a great uh, and that and then they got sloppy. But Russia has has not had a good hit the history of russia was not conducive to um a free and equal people and the longer that history went on the less conducive it became uh, yeah this I'm, was early enough this right. was early enough that there was a real shot at getting out of that syndrome yeah, see, I, 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 I sense it. We actually really got lucky that it was Tsar Mikhail one, right? Because yeah. if it had been any other person, would have been yeah. a a heck of a lot harder for us to write what we wrote. Right. Yeah. I sense Eric's hand in this a little bit. That you know he he always had an eye for that. Let's see what we can do to improve things without uh wrecking yeah. things first kind of thing so it's neat. yes and no um actually the the kremlin games started out as a bunch of short stories in the gazette cool uh, and then eric said all right we need we need a novel so you're gonna turn that you're gonna combine these in the big thing eric did in the first novel was that he insisted that the change in zeppi i had had this all plotted out I had thought it out, I had considered it, I had worked it all out. And what it was going to be was this gradual, grain by grain, almost imperceptible change that would slowly turn this basically dumb jock into uh, the Bernie Zeppi at the end of Kremlin Games who would be almost a scholar, still, still, a, still a good guy, you know, Still a regular guy, but hardworking and very dedicated. But it was going to be a very gradual change, the way people change, or at least in my in my experience. Eric looked at it and said, well, yeah, you're sort of, you know, technically you're correct. Make a lousy story. It won't work. You've got to get make him make the change sudden enough to be visible and clear. So we put in the bit about the um slow plague in Moscow and Bernie seeing this little child die because he didn't know how to stop the slow plague and it and that that was the turning point it gave us a nice solid turning point and that's that set it up for Bernie to go from 
basically your football dot. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't mean to imply that Eric created it, but that Eric sensed that that was a cool aspect of the story. Yeah, you can make things. Oh, he absolutely did. I mean, he was he was pretty pretty definite about no, you can't do it that way. <laughs> you got to do something to make him better. Right. And so that's what we did. Cool. So uh, getting back on the technical aspect of it, I, I, I suspect I know Paula's answer to this, but which for each of you was your favorite technical adaptation, the one you see having the greatest impact on the sovereign states? Um, I, I, Paula, you want to try it or should I, you want me to? Well, for me, it's the airplanes. So, you know, me not to mention sanitation and all of the many, many other things that they were doing at the time was. This is one of at the time my Russia. Huh? Go ahead. I didn't hear. Um, actually, my favorite was that another one of Eric's suggestions. Um, we already had the air cushion landing gear, but uh, Eric Sajet wanted the steam-powered airplane. Okay? And um, that, in a way, is actually my favorite innovation. There are real advantages to internal combustion, and those advantages are especially true in aircraft. There are also advantages to steam power. And but you really can't do steam in an aircraft. There have been steam aircraft. There was one built in 1936. And uh, it, but its drawback was the, the condenser. The condenser didn't work that well and it leaked. And so the thing had a flight time of like 15 minutes. All right, and it, but it wasn't fuel. It was the loss of water from the condenser. Right. And part of that was the condenser was was too small, right? Now, since you've already got the air cushion landing gear, we could go ahead and put in the sort of condenser that we needed to make a workable system. But the important thing from the Russian point of view, from how it's going to affect Russia over the next few years is Steam power is the most flex fuel of all flex fuels. You can use anything in it, wood, fuel, uh, coal oil, alcohol, anything that'll burn, you can use. As long as the water's clean and, and has, has been de-aerated. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and you can, and you can do that minute, guys. I'll right back. Okay. Um, but the thing about it is that Russia needs that. Russia, across those 11 time zones, lightly populated, not a lot of people across 11 time zones with not, not a lot of resources, they need that means of transport. Right. That in our timeline, the railroads had this 100-year head start. And so we spent a fortune building railroads. And that facilitated, but having an aircraft industry in Russia, in Europe at that time, because you don't have to build, you don't have to spend 10 years and a trillion dollars effectively right. building a rail line from one end of the russia or from one end of america to the other yeah the steel the will the coal every, everything else that goes into yeah real such a massive scale if you can get around that that even if it's more expensive in terms of uh price per pound right if you don't count the rail and it is a lot but in the meantime it it gets you there. It gives you a workable solution. And that and ideas get transferred. And ideas get transferred. Right. Neat. 
So uh, which one for you was the most fun to write then? All right, Eric on made his part. Hmm? Oh, uh, on my part, our, my favorite book that we have written is an angel called Peterbilt, which is not out yet. <laughs> I enjoyed the Moscow and, and all the rest of them, but my favorite book that we have written for Eric was, is an angel called Peterbilt, but that's just me. And that, that was, that was Eric's It's not baby. Her, I mean, we wrote, yeah. uh, Eric had written the first like 35,000 words of it. And uh, Tony had come to him and said, and it was gonna be a sort of part of another book. But then Tony came to Eric and said, all right, I want you to expand it into a full book. By which time Eric was already kind of sick. Right. And uh, so he said, all right, I, I, I'm going to need some help with this. And uh, then I remember sitting in Eric's hospital room and going over how we were going to do this and what we were going to need and how we were going to change this because uh, we'd come in to help out to help finish the the first story, and it ended up being about forty five thousand words. Um, and then uh, how we were going to change that first story, where that ended with um, Gary's uh, Jer Jerry's arrival, not not too much of a spoiler there, uh, into a whole novel. And we would sit down and we sat down and talked it out and talked about what was going to happen. And so we knew what we were going to write when Eric passed. And to, to a great extent, you know, you were talking about their, they all have, that has more of Eric's hand in it than any of them. So I, I actually meant as far as the, the technical innovations, which were the most fun to write, but that, uh, that's cool information to have as well. But the, uh, all right. for me, the technical innovation, that was the most fun to write. That's hard because I I liked a lot of them. Uh, the oddly, uh, Rick Boatwright did the Aqualators. Right, you know that, right? Yeah. Uh, Rick came up with the Aqualators and the Aqualators and uh, and sort of Rick had passed and. Nobody, and I wasn't aware of anybody actually using the aquilators that much. Right. right. And Russia had no access to computers. Right. So they had every reason to go heavy into aquilators. Right. Yeah. Uh, uses, so I really, what? Uh, Chuck uses them on, in the naval ships. Charles Gannon on the, uh, oh, good. no peace beyond good. the line. They use it for calculating uh, ballistics. Uh, good. For good. And stuff. So, yeah. But yeah, absolutely. It's it's not uh, that common, I think. Uh, and yeah. this is my favorite too, because again, Rick, uh, just yeah. really an yeah. amazing idea that uh, you know yeah. dropped because of other advancements and other things. But you know, it's basically the punch card using water. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, though actually, all right. The yeah, the, the early ones had punch card, but it, if you integrate the aqualators with electrical circuits not integrated circuits just regular old wires and switches mm -hmm. um you can you can do um you you can input without the punch cards you don't necessarily need the punch card and you can also make one of the things that are that makes aqualators cool is that they they can do analog as well as digital. So you can actually put what amounts to a slide rule in your aqualator. All right. And that meant that means that you can do stuff with an ocular. We didn't go into the details, the technical details. You don't need to. Don't, yeah. But don't doubt that we considered them. Very They're cool. there in in you know in my head i know i know how the aqualators in the in the uh hero class aircraft work Neat. i really do 
And you, Paulus, is, is it still the Plains? Say again? Is it and you for your favorite thing to uh, consider about the technology? Is it the, the Plains or? No. To me, the whole concept of sanitation and all the other things is the most important part because people are going to live right. when they might die from a really stupid thing. Right. So that's really my part. But then, you know, I'm a girl, so no, no, I'm sort of a girl. For real. I mean, that that's one of the things. <laughs> how many the great little things that lose. save millions of lives. How many great minds did we lose? Yeah. Because they went mad from the wrong kind of plumbing, <laughs> you know, or right. or died too Except early. For me, I mean, the fact that Bernie, you know, put out there, hey, start boiling your water. Yeah, actually, there was a scene That's in Kremlin good. Games. I'm not spoiling anything here because this goes back to Kremlin Games. And if you haven't read it, you should. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a scene in Kremlin Games. Uh, actually, it's it's the, almost the scene that Eric told us to write. And this kid dies. This little blonde kid dies. And Bertie comes out and he's uh, speaking to someone. It may be Boris. Uh, but or it may be, but but it may be one of the scholars from the dacha, and he says, "The next time I see a doctor treating a kid without washing his hands, I'm going to kill him." <laughs> I'm right. don't don't doubt me. I will kill him. And the czar can and, and uh, at that position and. Became. I mean, if you start off with sanitation, you have room to do all of the other stuff. You have people to do all of the other stuff. You don't want them dying for nothing. Right. Yeah. Along those lines, also the the freeze drying. In our timeline, canning was understood first. Right. Now you people would leave stuff out in the cold to freeze. But the vacuum in combination with freezing to get freeze drying right. uh, is, is a technology that is comparable in difficulty to canning. Okay. Uh, neither one of these things are super simple. Canning is a bit more um, intuitive than freeze drying, but technologically, technically, Freeze drying. If you if you don't have a canning plant and you don't have a freeze dryer, it's almost about this. It's almost the same level of difficulty to get to to one or the other. Right. If you've got millions of factories turning out billions of can of canned corn, and then you start freeze drying corn, then the freeze dry stuff is going to be very very a lot more expensive because the infrastructure is not there. Right. But then none of the infrastructure is there, which means everything's going to be more expensive. But it also means that freeze drying and these other techniques for food preservation, everything's and that right back to the clean water and food preservation. And now all of a sudden, people who were going to be starving to death that winter aren't. And they're not dying of disease either. So there's a lot of stuff. And a lot of that happened in Kremlin Games and Vulgar Rules. It's also, it's still happening in- Like they're the benefits of it now. Yeah, and they're starting to reap the, re the benefits of it now, but it's also still happening that the advancements and, all right, for one thing that goes right back to the clean water in um, this, is this okay? A little bit of a spoiler, not too much of one. Um, they introduce cowpox inoculations, and they do it because people were dying of smallpox in 
eastern and the in eastern Siberia. Right. The the people from the west were introducing small small talks to eastern Siberia just the way they did going the other direction when they got to America. And nobody really knew what it was causing it. Nobody but people were getting sick and a lot of people didn't have uh, much in the way of uh, immunity to it and a lot of people were dying. This happened this killed a lot of the people in uh, Siberia. A lot of them died from this sort of thing. And our guys are inoculated and they're bringing inoculations with them. Very cool. When they go east. So, so. moving moving on from the technology that, that was your favorite, I, I suspect I know the answer to this, but which character or characters from sovereign states would each of you most want to meet? Hmm. Oh. Okay, from sovereign states. Um. Anna. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'd love to meet Natasha. Uh, and um, but. Anna or Anya, I can't remember the the one who runs Anya. the Dutch. Dacha, she's that's uh, Anya. Anya, yeah, the one uh, she's who took over. Also, Miroslava. Yes, I mean she's as weird as we are. I don't think she's in sovereign stakes, is she? Yeah. She, 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 okay. She's not a major character, but yeah, she's involved in it. She's uh. Okay. Yeah, she. It's it, been so long since we wrote it; it's kind of hard for me to remember. But yeah, Miroslava, I really like Miroslava. Yeah, and she's weird like us. So. Well, yeah, well, you, you almost have to be. <laughs> so, uh, which character would you like to avoid, like the plague, and why? Um. Sheremetev. Yeah, Sheremetev, though he's actually sort of off camera all through sovereign states. Um, yeah, because he's probably dead in a ditch. Yeah. Hallelujah. Uh, actually, probably most members of the Boyer Duma, I would really like to avoid. There are also a couple of characters in um, uh, Novinovgrad. Uh, remember, I don't, I, I, again, I don't want, yeah, uh, again, I don't want to get, uh, to do too much in, in the, in the way of spoiling, but there were some rough times in Nizhny Novgorod in this book, and some of the people who lived there did not shine as good human beings. All right. So, uh, which character would you want as an ally? Uh, depends. It depends on the circumstances, but honestly, I think it's Mikhail. I Miroslav Paula, you said. Yeah, I said Miroslava. That I mean, because she's kind of a genius. She has her problems because she's probably somewhere on the autistic spectrum. But uh, neuroatypical. That's a woman, and that's a woman that can figure things out. But I do like Zara Mikhail. I'm, you know, the the one we wrote. Yeah, <laughs> which which. Yeah, the, the degree to which he is similar to the one that actually existed is anybody's guess. We don't actually know. The, the truth is, though, there are stories about the actual Mikhail. There are so many stories, and a lot of them are written by people who had reason to disparage Russia and Russia's 
Anzar Mikhail, uh, that it's really hard to tell what the man actually was like. Right. And his circumstances did not invite openness. Right. But Arbzar Mikhail, and another little bit of a spoiler, um, when he asked, uh, when, when Tim is asked who he thinks is the best strategic thinker he knows, he says, you are. And Mikhail gets upset at first because he thinks Tim is sucking up like so many do, right. and then realizes that Tim meant it. And that's because Mikhail had, Mikhail was a gentle guy. He wasn't, Mikhail was not tough, not in the real world and not in the way we wrote him. We did, however, force him to sort of come to grips with the fact that whatever he did, it was going to cost lives and to be able to live with that and to be able to start making decisions. And when he did, it turns out that he was really quite good at it. Cool. So uh, penultimate question here on the Bain Free Radio are, what, aside from the entertainment value, do you hope readers will carry with them after reading Sovereign States? There, there's, I can't, this is Tony. Tony, uh, when we got notes from Tony on the book, right? Uh -huh. um, uh, she said that we needed to clarify the what it what the book was about, and um, rather than just having the story, we needed to, and so we introduced a scene between Mikhail and his wife fairly early in the book. And that scene with him waking up from the nightmare. Yeah. That scene. Read the whole thing. Pay attention to it. That's what I want you to take away from it. And it was Tony's thing that we do that. Cool. Very cool. And uh, Paula, how about you? They're actually the same thing that I mean, I, I found that particular scene heart wrenching and I helped write it, you know, but uh, it was still heart. -wrenching. Yeah, no, it's it's neat when you as a writer, when you got to get the I got myself in the fields, what's going on? <laughs> so very cool. Right. I, I think that I know exactly what scene you're talking about. I think that everybody will appreciate it when they read it, too. Uh, so the last question for you tonight, what conventions can your fans hope to catch up with you and what other work can we look forward to seeing from you? Um, I don't know. And Paula is sort of stuck there uh, at home for, for now yeah. anyway. Um, uh, I'm 70. And my husband is 89, and he had a mini stroke two years ago. And now he's getting kind of wobbly. And I don't feel like I can go anywhere and leave him alone. Right. Because we've been in, let's see, today's the 26th. Four days, we will have been 40 years married. And I cannot walk away from the problems, right. you know, he's... Congratulations on making it to 40 years. That's amazing. And... Uh, and so far. <laughs> yeah. And as far as for books, what we can might see from you, Angel Named Peter. Okay, uh, probably early next month, we're going to see Friedrich's Airplane. It's in the Worst Bell Multiverse. Um, you you can already get uh, the, there are three Marislava books that you may not be aware of that you may or may not they're already out uh, but there's uh, a new book coming out in the Worst Bell uh, universe there's 
uh, moving universe, which will be coming out a month or so down the road. And that's an anthology of a bunch of stories from the Gazette, Gazette but also new stories in some of our other universes. We've got a story in the Warspell universe. We've got a story in the uh, Star Wings universe, which is straight uh, sci-fi sci-fi space opera. That include that that universe includes Pandora's crew, Arachne's webs, uh, the Rat Rebellion, and recently published the Memphis's Wisdom. The those four books are available on Amazon, and um, they they're. They're not as upscale as the Honor Harrington books, but um, they're space. It's a tramp freighter, not the the Manticore and Navy, but they do they they do get involved in politics. And by the time of Metis's, the the revolution has begun. and that. They're fun. These are fun space opera books. Good We've also got, uh, which we started with Eric, the Demon Rift uh, universe. This is one. It was actually, it actually was going to be a um, one of the shards books, but this shard was going to take him into a magical play, into a world where magic worked, and then we ended up doing it a different way. Uh, but basically what it is, is magic starts working in the 14th century in Europe during during the Hundred Years War, right? right. And uh, then a small, a van full of teenagers gets picked up by a demon and brought back to the... Um, century so now you've got not just magic working but people from the 21st century suddenly there a bunch of teenagers so those, those are the books that are available or are will be coming out shortly those are actually all available that but the one that's coming out shortly is moving universes is going to have have a story in that one cool. and uh so Basically, we're putting stories from our other universes in these anthologies, giving people there there will be a lot of 1632 stories in them and stories from other universes so that you can have a taste, see what you like. Well, it sounds like you guys are putting out a lot of content. So great. So this has been the Bain Free Radio Hour with Paula Goodlett and Gordon Huff. We hope that you've enjoyed it and uh, hope to see you again soon uh, for Angel uh, named Peterbilt uh, and uh, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynn Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the elven court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. Chapter 4 Beware Elves Bearing Gifts Wargs, Windwolf, Maynard, Interdimensional Smugglers, and Nathan Chernowski were all pushed out of her mind at the sight of the loaded picnic tables. The competitive spirit of the scientists had produced amazing culinary feats. On the slim excuse of alerting people to possible food allergies, each dish had the maker's name and the list of ingredients. The most elaborate dishes had the name first. The very simple donations had the makers listed last. Even Lane was not immune to the competitive nature of the cookout. 
Her dish of fresh strawberries, spinach, walnuts, and homemade vinaigrette managed to be simple yet elegant. Tinker loaded her plate with Lane's salad, dill potato salad, German coleslaw, three bean salad, a linguine salad, a tortellini salad, baked beans, a sweet bean bun, a brownie, something made with pine nuts, and a cream cheese pineapple jello salad. She found Oil Can playing grill master, trying to smoke out his forming harem. Something about being stranded on a strange world, combined with Oil Can's spry, puckish good looks, seemed to make her cousin irresistible as a safe elf substitute to earth women wanting to experience elf home to the fullest. Oil Can dodged the more aggressive attention, especially from the married women. He tended to be very moral in that regard. Still, Oil Can liked people, clever conversation, and playful flirting, so he went through something close to juggling fire sticks to attend any party at the observatory. Already two women hung at the edge of the smoke, laughing at his witty remarks. Hey, Tinker braved the smoke to eye the meat on the grill. Hey, Oil Can hugged her soundly. What had happened that suddenly everyone was hugging her? The harem eyed her with slight dismay. Oil Can chose not to introduce her, probably as a tactic to get rid of the women. He edged some of the food threatening to topple over the edge back onto her plate. Think you got enough food? I haven't had food since dinner yesterday. Tinker pointed out the largest hamburger on the grill. Can I have that one cooked to medium? Okie dokie. Oil can patted it with a spatula. Red juices welled up in the slots. It will be done in a couple of minutes. I came back to get you when they said you'd left with Maynard. I tried calling you. Is everything okay? I left my headset in the trailer. She balanced her plate in her left hand and ate with her fingers. Where's the forks? Have you tried Lane's salad? Boy, is it good. Here you are, little savage. Oil can handed her a dormitory fork, unknowingly echoing Windwolf. Try the stuff with the corn, if there's any left. I don't think I have room for more. Still, Tinker turned to scan the picnic table for the stuff with the corn. What about you? I couldn't get through to you. Oil Can looked embarrassed. I busted my headset on shutdown. I'd taken it off after it started to rain and put it on the seat next to me. We sat on it, she guessed. No, he laughed. That would have been too simple. It fell out onto the ground at the yard sometime, and it got run over. I found it pressed into the mud, but in a thousand little pieces. Oh, crap, Oil Can. Do you know how hard it is to get those things in Pittsburgh? I know, I know. I knew you would be pissed, so I tracked down another one. You'll need to integrate it into my system for me. What? Where'd you find it? He glanced to the women still hovering on the edge of their conversation and dropped into Elvish. It was probably stolen merchandise. Someone was selling headsets out of the trunk of their car down in the strip district. The box was beat up, like it had been drop-kicked. I do not even know if the thing will work but I only paid $10 for it. Tinker pondered the possibility that the headset was part of Maynard's mystery shipment, wondering whether she was obliged to tell the EIA or not. One of the harem women took advantage of Tinker's silence and pointed out that Tinker's burger needed to be flipped. Having recaptured Oil Can's attention, the women laughed with him as he flipped the burger and pressed it down onto the blackened grill, the dripping grease making flame leap up. Tinker ate and thought. The veteran's bridge crossed over the top of the strip district. A box dropped over the edge of the bridge would land on a rooftop or street. Depending on the packing, the box and contents could survive fairly intact. Oil Can had seen all of the men dressed as EIA guards, so he would have recognized any of them. Thus, the person who'd sold Oil Can the headset most likely found the box. Telling Maynard would probably result in having the headset seized and the unlucky finder questioned and possibly jailed. The important piece of information was that the smugglers had brought a box of headsets to Elf Home. Headsets themselves were useless without some kind of service plan, but once you had air connection, they could tie together anything from a home, work, user tri base to a multi user network, like the police ran to link together their officers. Tinker heard her name spoken and looked up. 
Oil Can had lost one of his harem girls and was finally introducing her to the remaining woman. I told you about my cousin, the mad scientist. I am not a mad scientist. Yes, you are. You like to make big machines that make lots of noise, move real fast, or reduce other objects down to little pieces. You're only saying that because you know I can't hit you at the moment. Tinker considered throwing food instead, and then decided it was a waste of good food. Oil Can grinned smugly at her, as if he had guessed that she would decide against throwing food. Recognition of Tinker's matching nut-brown coloring and slight frame dawned in the woman's eyes. She put a hand over her mouth to catch a laugh. Oh, I'm sorry, I was expecting someone... Older, Tinker guessed. Male, the woman winced. I, of all people, should know better. She gave an honest smile. Not only was her left ring finger unadorned, there wasn't even a slight bend of pale skin. Honestly single, then. Hi, I'm Ryan McDonald. Glad to meet you. Glad to meet you. Tinker bobbed a slight bow over her full plate. Sorry for butting in earlier, but life has been a little insane for the last few days. Speaking of which, Oil Can said, we really left the yard wide open. I bolted two metal plates over the workshop doorway, locked up and padlocked the gate as we went out, but we took the whole security system with us. Someone broke in during shutdown. Oh, shit. Tinker tried not to think of everything scattered haphazardly through the offices. At least her most expensive equipment was in her workshop trailer. Were we robbed? No. Whoever it was broke all the way in and then walked back out without taking anything. They might have been looking for Windwolf. Was that supposed to make her feel better? I went over to Roach's and picked up Bruno and Pete to keep an eye on the place until you get the security system back online. Bruno and Pete were two elf hounds, on par in size with the foo dog wargs, bred for intelligence, courage, and loyalty. Oh, that's horrible, Ryan said. They said that Pittsburgh was safe. The cousins looked at her, and after a moment of silence said in unison, If you don't count the man-eating animals, yes. Ryan looked startled. Are there a lot of those? The elves patrol the woods around here. Oilcan waved his spatula at the earth scrub trees, slowly being overrun by elfin forest. But you shouldn't go into the woods without a weapon. Tinker ate a mouthful of the jello salad before adding, And if you hear an animal moving around outside, don't leave the building you're in, even during the day. Call 911, and they'll send someone to make sure it isn't a dangerous animal. Don't leave doors ajar, Oil Can said. Always shut them firmly. Tinker considered which of the other common safety practices Ryan should know, as she polished off the jello salad. Stay out of the swampy areas unless you have a xenobiologist with you who can spot the black willows and the other flesh-eating plants. Oh, Oil Can waved his spatula at Ryan. And the rivers aren't safe for swimming. The water is clean enough, but some big river sharks come up the Ohio. River sharks? Flesh-eating plants? You two are teasing me, right? No, the cousins both said. There's a list of safety procedures that they usually hand out, Tinker said. If you didn't get one, it's posted on the dorm's bulletin board. You really should read it. This isn't Earth. Ryan glanced about the picnic grove with the red checkered tablecloths on the picnic tables, the teams of scientists playing volleyball, and a portable stereo playing neon rock music. Actually, things don't seem any different. Give it time. Oil can cut Tinker's hamburger, peered at the center, and lifted it off the grill. Here you go, medium cooked. Are there buns? Picky, picky, picky. Oil Can went off in search of a bun for her. Ryan watched him go with a look that made Tinker view her cousin with a new eye. One had to admit he had mighty fine assets. Can I ask you, Ryan said hesitantly, her eyes still following Oil Can, if your cousin has a girlfriend. Look, you seem nice, but you're not staying. It might seem fun to you to go to Elf Home and date a cute local, but it's not fair to Oil Can. Thirty days is just long enough to break his heart. Ryan turned to consider her. You've given this speech before. 
Every 30 days. Sorry, Ryan said. They said that the elves don't socialize much with humans. I suppose it would seem like the same thing to them, here today and gone tomorrow. Tinker winced. Did Windwolf view her the same way Oilcan saw the astronomers? Oilcan came back with a bun lying open on a paper plate. There. Tomato, lettuce, spicy brown mustard, chopped red onion, and real Heinz ketchup. The stuff made on Elf Home. Not that new plant on the other side of the rim on Earth. Oh, you know me so well, it's scary. Tinker paused, considering the bun and her still overflowing plate. Excuse me. She took the second plate. I'm going to have to sit down to finish. That was another installment in Win Spencer's Tinker. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judgowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Paula Goodlett and Gorg Huff and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 